Tune your ear to wisdom. Cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Welcome to Project Philippians, a deep dive into one of the richest treasure mines in Scripture. I'm delighted to have you join me today for another excavation into an amazing 2,000-year-old book. Oh, my friend, it is so great to have you back. It really is. For today's episode, I, I really hope that you are just sitting in a comfortable chair with the Bible in your lap or on a table and a warm cup of coffee or warm beverage of your choice because we have an adventure in front of us today. We really do. And uh, I'm excited to get into it. It's going to take some time, so let's dive in right away and start with a word of prayer. Lord God, we come to you today again anxiously awaiting what you have to speak to us today. Lord, we want to have open ears. We want to hear because we want to allow your Holy Spirit to sweep away the dust in our heart and revive the fire that you kindled once long ago. We want to be men and women of great passion, great devotion, great service to you because you deserve it. So, Lord, teach us today. We thank you for the privilege of gathering before you with open hearts and open ears. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right. We're going to start today, as we always do, in Philippians chapter 1, but we're not going to end there today. As you know, we've been going through the introductory prologue to the book of Philippians, where Paul has just been sharing his love and prayers for the Philippian people. But now he's going to change the subject and talk a little bit about his own personal life. So we're going to start in verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Oops, breaks, <laughs> stop there. They know something that we don't know. Uh, he is sharing something that he, he knows the Philippians are already aware of, but unfortunately we aren't yet. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So the very first question that should come to your mind is, well, what in the world has happened to him? <laughs> to answer that question, we're going to need to hit the pause button once again on our journey through the book of Philippians and turn back to the book of Acts once more. Those of you who have been on this journey since the beginning know that we spent several episodes in the book of Acts early on as we looked at Paul's history with the Philippians themselves in the city of Philippi. So now we want to go back to that moment and trace his steps from then until the time of writing of this letter. Now, the thing about that is that that's going to cover a lot of chapters in the book of Acts. We're going to be basically starting in chapter 18 and working all the way pretty much to the end. But unlike the study that we've done so far, we are not going to be going into great detail on everyone. In fact, this is going to be one of those fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants type of journeys. So you're just going to need to get in, sit down, buckle up, and hold on, because we're going to fly through this really quickly. I mean, there's so much here, and I would love just to spend leisurely time walking through it bit by bit. But I want to get back to Philippians eventually, so it, what we're going to do instead is just fly through these stories about the Apostle Paul and his third missionary journey, as recorded by Luke in the latter part of the book of Acts. 
Of course, I don't expect to be able to get through this all in one episode. We're probably going to take two, maybe three episodes, I think, at this point. But we're going to take off today and see how far we get. Now, I need to say that I'm just so grateful that God gave us a man like Luke to record these stories. He is an incredible scholar. He's well-respected as a historian amongst Christian and non-Christian scholars alike for his attention to detail, his precision with historic, geographic, political details as he spreads throughout. So we just really know, we can just be really confident these are accurate stories. Um, Many of them he was a direct eyewitness of, and he records them with great care. And so turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And by the way, since this is just recounting a journey with lots of stops and lots of cities, it would be supremely helpful if you had a Bible map in front of you uh, to try to retrace these steps. So if you don't have one, you might have one in the back of your Bibles, or you can look online and just type in uh, Paul's third missionary journey, and you'll get uh, just oodles of different maps to choose from. And uh, that will be really helpful as we trace this along. So chapter 17, Paul has just left Philippi. We've, we already studied the, his journey in Philippi, and then he went on down south in the Grecian Peninsula to Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And then over to Corinth, where he actually stayed for a year and a half, which was one of the longest posts he had on his missionary journey so far. But at the end of that time, he was finally ready to return to his hometown in Antioch, back in Palestine. And so he begins the journey back. Along the way, he stops off in a place called Ephesus. And there he senses something in the air. And he wants to stay, but he can't. So he promises them that he will return. And finally, he makes his way back to Antioch. And so we read in chapter 18, verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, we don't know how long he stayed home. It doesn't tell us. But after some time, he gets the itch to go back out onto those Asian and European roads that he'd become so familiar with. He wants to go back out. So he sets out from there and travels from place to place throughout the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. And so begins his third missionary journey. Now, I want to pause here and tell you a little bit about what was going on in Paul's mind. Now, as careful as Luke was as a historian, he doesn't record everything. But, as it happens, Paul wrote three of his longest letters on the third missionary journey. So we get a peek into what was going on in his heart and mind at that time in his life. So when we piece together the different hints that are scattered through those letters, we begin to get this picture of two driving ambitions that are motivating Paul and pushing him forward. The first is his ambition to go to Rome. Why Rome? Well, Rome was the center of the empire, the largest city in the world. There are estimates of a million people or more in that city, and Paul knows that they need the gospel of Jesus. And so he has this great ambition to get to Rome. But before he can do that, there's one other really interesting uh, ambition that's motivating him. And that is that he knows that his Jewish brothers in Jerusalem are going through a time of particular economic 
distress. We don't know all the details, but uh, there's a clue in Acts 11 about a great famine that hit the land during that time, and the persecution is also very severe. So uh, between those two elements, uh, the, the, his Jewish brothers were really, really struggling. And Paul has this great burden for them, and this, this compelling passion just wells up in his heart that he wants to somehow help his brothers and sisters, especially the ones in Jerusalem. But how is he going to do it? The Christians in his home church of Antioch have already given sacrificially and sent money with Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem back in Acts 11. We read about it. And so they've already sacrificed uh, in this cause. Where else can Paul find financial support to, to bring relief to his precious brothers and sisters in Jerusalem? And then, as he's thinking and praying about this, an explosion of a brainstorm comes to Paul's mind. He thinks to himself, what if the Gentiles in the churches that I've been planting over the last three years, what if I go back to them and ask them to help support these poor brothers and sisters? Now, the reason this is such a huge idea is because you've got to understand something about the Jerusalem church. It's not the same church as it was back in Acts chapter 2. There's been some growing nationalism that has brought about some great racial tensions between Jews and Gentiles. We're going to learn more about that in the episodes to come, but, but Paul knows about this. He knows that there is just a great divide between Jews and Gentiles. And here he spent the last three years of his life just pouring into, just bringing the gospel to Gentiles and, and bringing them to Christ. And so he realizes that if he can convince them to share from their own pockets and wallets with the Jews in Jerusalem, perhaps that could stir a beautiful racial reconciliation in the name of the gospel. And so he makes up his mind to travel back through all those hundreds and thousands of miles of roads on a fundraising trip, essentially. Okay, so these are Paul's dreams. These are his great ambitions. And like I said, we, we know about them because of some of the hints that he left in his letters. So, for example, in Romans chapter 15, uh, Romans was a book he wrote on his third missionary journey while he happened to be in, stationed in Corinth. And he writes this in verse 23, halfway through the verse, he says to the Romans, I have been longing for many years to see you. And I plan to do so when I go to Spain. And I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. So we get this picture that he wants to go to Rome. But before he can do that, he's got to complete his other ambition. In verse 25, he says, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, in other words, he says, the Gentiles are blessed because they are benefactors. They are recipients of the gospel from from where? From the Jewish Old Testament and from the Jewish Messiah. That's how they have been grafted into the kingdom of God. And as a result, he says, they owe it to them, to the Jews, to share with them their material blessings. Okay, so you see Paul's dream. 
It's been years in the making. He is dreaming of bringing financial relief and racial reconciliation to Jerusalem and then to take the gospel to Rome, to the center of the empire. Okay, so that's where we find ourselves, and we're back in the book of Acts now, and we're going to skim through the story really quickly. We're going to start in Acts 18, verse 23. After spending some time in his home church of Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. So this is the eastern portion of modern-day Turkey, and some of his earliest mission trips uh, were to there. And then we're going to jump to chapter 19, verse 1. Halfway through, it says, Paul took the road then through the interior of Asia, or Turkey, and arrived at Ephesus. Remember, he kept his promise to return there. And sure enough, it was a powerful ministry there. He started teaching in the synagogues for three months, and then he moved into a larger hall and spent two years teaching day and night, uh, preaching the gospel, raising up disciples, sending them out to the regions all around, to Colossae and so forth. And just a really powerful ministry there. Miracles were happening. Demons were being cast out. Just extraordinary power of God was on display. And Ephesus was just the epicenter of a great spiritual earthquake in all of Asia. Now, that's not to say that it was easy in Ephesus. By no means. Paul writes elsewhere about all the opposition and persecution that he faced in Ephesus. Many afflictions, many battles. This is kind of a theme of his third missionary journey where there was great spiritual victory, but it was, it was mixed right in there with great spiritual suffering and tribulation as well. But eventually it's time for him to go. So skip down to verse 21. It says, After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, but he wanted to pass through Macedonia and Achaia first. So Macedonia, that's where Philippi is, Achaia, that's where Corinth is. So he wanted to go back to those regions. And then he says, and after I have been there, he says, I must visit Rome also. And so, again, these two visions, going to Jerusalem and then from there going to Rome. He still, even after the years in Ephesus, he has not forgotten these great ambitions. It's it's just exhilarating to me, actually, to see this vision that he's cultivating in his heart, this dream that's given to him by God, this dream to serve God in big and powerful ways, and he just cultivates this dream in his heart. But it's time to leave Ephesus. And it's good timing, too, because uh, the tensions there are really rising. A riot erupts in the city, and uh, Paul and his companions are uh, very nearly attacked or killed. But once the riot ends, he knows it's time to go. So chapter 20, he says, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Again, that's where Philippi is. And he traveled throughout the area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. And from all the time that we've been studying in recent episodes of, of Paul's love and, and, and relationship with the Philippians, we know how, how special and precious this, this season of his life must have been. But Luke doesn't tell us too much about it. He, he says, but he finally arrived in Greece, which is where Corinth is, and he, there he stayed three months. And then he's going to sail for Jerusalem. Uh, or for Syria, but there is a plot that erupts uh, against his life, and so he decides to, instead of sailing back to Jerusalem, now he's going to take the land route, or at least for a part of it, and so he goes back north from Corinth, up back and through Macedonia, 
And then here's something that's interesting. We learn that Paul was not traveling alone. He was accompanied, Luke tells us, by at least seven other guys. And if you count Luke himself, that's eight guys who were traveling with Paul as his companions, his partners, perhaps even his disciples. Luke tells us where each of them are from, and we see that they're from the cities that Paul had been ministering to all along this missionary journey. And so as he goes through these cities, some men have just become so sold out to this vision that they have joined up with his ambition, and they too are accompanying him now to Jerusalem. It's a long road back, though. First, they uh, sail across to Troas, which, if you remember, was the place where Paul first had that dream in the night of a Macedonian man calling for help that took him to Europe in the first place. Uh, But now he's back there, and he's basically on his farewell tour. He's making little stopovers at all these little cities and saying his goodbyes to these people. And in Troas, he, he preaches, it says, all night long until daylight. So you can just picture these people that are just hanging on every word that he has to say. It's just precious time last moments with Paul. Although, of course, not everyone's quite so attentive. There's one young kid who does his off and falls out the window. <laughs> Paul has to raise it from the dead, which I'm sure woke everybody up. And by the way, if you're finding yourself a little sleepy listening to me right now, take another sip of coffee, would you? Because I can't afford to lose another listener. No, but these guys are just eager to hear Paul, and um, they're just it's just precious last moments with their dear apostle. Now, his next stop would be Ephesus, which is where he spent the last two or three years. But we read that he doesn't want to stop there. In verse 16, he says, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus in order to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So there's this timing issue that has become critical for him. Now, he had just celebrated Passover in Philippi, and the next festival of the Jews is Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. And so he has, he realizes he only has seven weeks to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Why is he so eager to get there then? Well, I think it's because he knows that during the festivals, that's when Jerusalem is going to be most filled with Jews, visiting, touring Jews that come to Jerusalem. And he wants to make the biggest impact possible when he brings this incredible gift from the Gentile churches. He wants as many people to experience it as possible. So he's eager to get there by Pentecost. But he can't pass by Ephesus without at least saying goodbye. So from Miletus, he calls for the Ephesian elders to come down. They have to walk 30 miles to come down. And he gives his farewell sermon to them. And it is such a moving and powerful sermon. I wish we had time just to dig through it and, and, and go through it piece by piece. But let me just skim through it really quickly because... It gives us such a beautiful glimpse into the heart of this incredible man. So in verse 18, it says, When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. And you know I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So Paul is just recapping and re-summarizing the the essence of what his message was to them and the powerful, emotional, passionate desire to humbly give them the word of God. But then Paul tells them a glimpse of what's about to come. And this this is really where I want to focus in on. Verse 22, he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. 
I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Oh, my friend, I want you to stop and just let these words sink in. The reality that is facing Paul. He is no stranger to suffering and persecution, and yet the Holy Spirit is warning him that he really hasn't seen anything yet, that what he is about to face is going to exceed anything that he's faced so far, but he says it doesn't matter. He has one ambition, one heartbeat, and that is to preach the gospel, to bring life and hope and joy to people who are lost. And he says, My life is worth nothing to me unless I can finish that task. He's counted the cost and he said, friends, it is worth it. And then he says in verse 25, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am an instant of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. He goes on to just commend them to be strong elders, shepherds, protecting the church and the dangers that are coming to them. Verse 32, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then at the end, at verse 36, he says, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed and they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Oh, can you just feel this passion? Just this tender moment of these people just weeping and grieving the loss of their dear friend and apostle. This is becoming a theme, isn't it? This journey of tears as the implications of the commitment and determination that Paul has to go to Jerusalem are becoming more and more evident. So after this emotionally wrenching scene at the ship on the dock, they go into chapter 21 and says we had to tear ourselves away from them. And then we put out to sea and there's a couple more stops until they finally reach a city called Tyre, which is on the western bank of the Mediterranean, just north of Palestine. But the the theme continues, and Luke is just recording this mounting tension. We we read in verse 4 that uh, they found Christians there in Tyre, and and some spirit-filled prophets urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. They know what's happening, and they know what's coming, and they don't want him to go through with it, but he continues on his way. And then down in verse 10, they, they get to Caesarea, and there they spend a number of days there, and then a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, I believe this is the same Agabus that had predicted the famine way back in chapter 11, years earlier, the famine that had devastated the countryside. And uh, now he's there prophesying again. He comes over to us in verse 11. He took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So here's this prophetic 
undeniable proclamation from the Holy Spirit what's about to happen to Paul. Of course, this isn't news to Paul. Remember, he said in every city, the Holy Spirit has been warning him what's about to happen. This is just more confirmation. But now the people, his friends, even Luke joins in with them and begs them. It says in verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. But listen to how Apostle Paul replies to them. Verse 13, then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Wow, this is a terrifying moment. And you know, I'll admit, it's also a little troubling. I mean, what's Paul doing here? The spirit-filled prophets are telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to go. Is he just being stubbornly disobedient? What's, what's going on? Well, I don't believe he is. Because when I look at this closely, I see that the Holy Spirit never told Paul not to go. In all of these prophetic warnings, the Holy Spirit never commanded him not to go. He just warned him what was gonna, he was going to face. But the next question is, was Paul being unwise and reckless? This is actually a a harder question for me because I'm by no means am I here to recommend that we disregard the counsel of godly friends. But I believe Paul is being driven by a core value that stands above everything else in his life. He reminds me of of men like Jim Elliott and his friends who flew down into the bloodthirsty jungles of Ecuador. Or like Martin Luther King Jr. when he was marching across the bridge in Selma, defying the guns and batons that were waiting for him on the other side. These are men whose decision has been made not by the sensible calculation of risk versus reward, but rather by the rock-solid conviction at the core of their heart that the purpose of my life is not just to survive. (laughs) The purpose of my life is to live and, if necessary, die for the sake of the glory of the name of Jesus. And that's what drove Paul to march into Jerusalem. My friend, I am so stirred by Paul's example. A man who knew what was facing him, the suffering that was facing him, and who was willing to march forward into it. I was jogging just the other day. I was going up a hill in my hometown, and it's a pretty steep hill at the end, and I was feeling out of shape, and I was feeling tired. And I said to myself, this hill, it wants to have the best of me. And I said, the only thing I can do is just keep pointing my feet towards the top and keep going. And that's what I did. And I got home and I was thankful that God had given me the legs and the lungs to run to the top of a hill. But my friends, God is calling us to the tops of the hills. He wants us to march forward, to point our feet to the top and don't let them stop running. That's the lesson that I learned from Paul of Tarsus. And there's more lessons to come. We're going to see more in the next few episodes how this decision was used by God to shape the final years of Paul's life. But in the meantime, 
I want to just turn to the Lord right now in prayer for your decisions and mine. Lord God, I am stirred and stunned by a man who is willing to look suffering in the eye and say, I don't care as long as it doesn't keep me from finishing the race that Christ has set out for me. All I care about is serving my Savior. Lord Jesus, would you please continue the process of working that type of determination into my heart and into the heart of the one who's listening to me right now. Lord, we want to be your followers, your disciples, your servants, no matter what the cost. Help us to point our feet to the top of the hill and help us to keep running, no matter the cost. We love you, Jesus. That's why we want to follow you. Thank you for inviting us. Amen. It's been an honor to have you spend this time with me, but don't let it end here. May the words of God continue to resonate in your heart transform your life until the day you meet our glorious King and Savior face to face.